The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, the book of Psalms, chapter 3. And uh, we are continuing our journey through the first five Psalms. And uh, we are searching for the timeless truths that are found within these ancient songs. Uh, And as you're turning there, and uh, before we read this psalm, I want to uh, just give you some of the backstory of what David was going through as he wrote it. We don't have as much detail about the time frame that some of the psalms were written, but this one, uh, we do know kind of out of what setting and environment and emotional condition David was writing it. So, uh, the time frame, we find the story of, of how this psalm came to be. It starts in 2 Samuel 13. And uh, one of David's sons' name was Amnon. And Amnon had an unfortunate um, fixation upon his sister Tamar. And uh, he, through some trickery, ended up getting her by herself and uh, violated her which is really terrible. Uh, And David's other son, Absalom, uh, took Tamar in and took care of her, but also became very vengeful over the situation. And so he waited waited two years to set something up where he could get Amnon by himself. And then uh, he took revenge on Amnon, took his life, got some other guys together and ended up cutting him down. And I'll just be honest with you right now as a point of confession that uh, to be honest with you, that seems like the right response to me initially uh, because I'm not done being sanctified by Jesus yet. Why is that not the right response? Well, because as we talked about last week, Romans 12, 19 tells us that we should never take our own vengeance but leave room for the Lord to do that, that his wrath and vengeance is total and complete and perfect. And when we take things into our own hands, we end up screwing it up. Um, I have to be honest with you, even today, uh, 10 years deep into ministry and supposed to be, you know, the primary Bible communicator here, if something like this happened in my life, my initial response would not be right. It would take the help of the Holy Spirit for me to end up obeying Romans 12, 19, um, because this kind of stuff is really infuriating. But thank God that uh, by his Holy Spirit, he allows us to do things Uh, that we would not normally do and obey scriptures we would not normally obey. Uh, Absalom does take vengeance into his own hands, and this refusal on his part to trust the Lord leads to a whole lot of heartache for his family. So after Absalom ends up killing Amnon, he flees to a place called Geshur, and he stays there three years. Uh, David's top general, his name is Joab, and he's a man that has fierce loyalty to David. Uh, He knew that David missed his son Absalom, but had not been able to bring himself to ask him to return based on the shame of the situation. Uh, So Joab gets a woman to kind of trick David. She comes with this fake story about how something happened with her kids, and it kind of, it set David up that once he made a judgment about her fictitious situation, it would put him in a spot to realize that he should call after his son and ask his son to come home. And so Um, Joab is a little deceitful in that, but really he's trying to help his king and his friend um, with the heartache of missing his son Absalom. So Joab gets the woman to do that. uh, And and so then David does ask Absalom to come home. Uh, 
and eventually he does. Uh, David doesn't let him come see him. He just kind of says, okay, at least he's back in Jerusalem. I know he's safe. Uh, but he, he, so Absalom does come back, but the whole time it's very clear. Absalom has harbored bitterness in his heart over this entire situation. And he has grown to hate his father because his father did not avenge Tamar. Um, and so some of that's probably just youthful boldness and not understanding uh, like his father did that vengeance is the Lord's. Um, some of it may have been orchestrated by their common enemy, the devil, I don't know. But uh, So Absalom comes back home, and he begins to undercut the authority of his father, David. He, uh, he begins to stand at the city gate, and as people are coming in uh, to seek judgment on situations from David the king, Absalom kind of turns them to the side, and uh, he, starts saying, he starts saying the thing that jealous people who want to steal authority that doesn't belong to them, always say. So people are coming to talk to David about their issues. Absalom's like, hey, 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 come over here. And he starts saying something along this, these lines. If I was the leader, I would give you justice. And all would be better. It's the same thing everybody that wants to undercut authority that doesn't belong to them ends up saying. Foolish people will often listen to voices like this. Uh, because they like to be pandered to more than they like the truth. And the truth is what must be spoken by a true leader. As is often the case, many of the, people, uh, many of the people's hearts begin to turn towards Absalom and away from David because of his treachery. Um, I think we just, this is kind of outside of the parameters of the rest of what we're going to talk about, but I think because it's brought up in this story, it's something that we should stop and deal with because it may not be something that we all understand. So, First of all, I just want to say that God appoints leaders and God removes leaders, okay? That's up to him. And, and we can go through all the scriptures and we can never, ever find an example where somebody starts believing they could do a better job than the current leader. They start scheming and manipulating based on that belief and then it goes well for them. You'll not find an example of that situation anywhere in the scriptures. Um, However, you do see David, Absalom's father, who knew that he was anointed king for a long time before it ended up happening. He honored and preserved Saul, even when Saul was trying to kill him. And then, though David was still a flawed and sinful man, David goes on to be the greatest king in all of Israel's history and maybe in all of ancient history. And I think some of it had to do with the heart that he had towards the leader that he was going to take over the throne, even when that leader was not acting right. He trusts, here's the point, David didn't take that into his own hands, he trusted God to handle it. He prayed for Saul, even looked out for Saul, even when Saul had lost his mind. Uh, Absalom, on the other hand, rises up against his father and leader because he disagreed with some of the decisions he made, and it ends up going really bad for him. And anytime we see somebody do that throughout the scriptures, it's a similar story. It doesn't go well. Uh, in case you're wondering, there's some weird undertone here. All the leaders here at Love City love each other. We're not having a problem. There's no coups. It's already written into our bylaws. If somebody has an issue, like we have some bladed weapons, we just get them out, we go at it. Whoever wins, they're on top, right? So <laughs> thus far, nobody's cut me down. That's why I'm still standing here. So amen. Uh, we, we have a conflict resolution plan, though. So don't worry about it. Uh, I, I'm not saying that because we have any issues or I have any concern about anybody here. It's just a principle that people need to understand. This is not just for ministry situations, that wasn't what was going on here. This is at your job. 
You might have a boss that acts like a total knucklehead. And every time you walk in there, every time they open their mouth, you instantly start to think, I could do your job better than you. Right? Oh, none of you have done. Okay, I, I noticed by your holy stares that none of you have ever, ever felt that way. We all have that tendency. Okay, so half of that tendency is just pride on our part, and you're wrong because you have no idea what their job entails, and you probably wouldn't do it even as well as they do if you got stuck in that position. Oh, that wasn't very nice to say. I know. But remember that part about real leaders having to say truthful stuff? That's, that's what it looks like. So there you go. <laughs> or maybe you, prob- maybe you could. Maybe you would do an absolute stellar job way better than they would. So what do you do? Do you undercut them? Do you begin manipulating situations? Do you begin to kind of say that around the way? That if, if, I, could, if I could get in that spot, man, everything in this office or this situation, this warehouse would look a whole lot better? No, you know what you should do? You should pray for them. Because either God will help them, and, and you should do your best to help them in their position, as opposed to undercutting them. Why would I do that? Because God will honor you, and that's more important than you trying to do something in a kind of conniving, sneaky way, because God just is not real happy with that behavior. Okay? You guys, we have, uh, the recording will kind of get staticky if you keep being so loud in response to stuff, so just try to calm down. <laughs> I know that was life-changing information, and you're excited about it, but uh, let's tone it down a bit, all right? So uh, Absalom leads an uprising against his father. David flees out to the wilderness. He leaves the city. Like He says to all his advisors, the people around him, the people that are are with him no matter what, he's like, guys, we're going to roll. They say, whatever you decide to do, king, we're with you. Uh, So many that are loyal go with him. Absalom enters Jerusalem. He sets up a tent on the roof of the palace and sleeps with all of his father's concubines that he left behind. And in that, he's kind of giving a double middle finger to his dad in front of all the people to let them know, I'm here, I'm now king, I don't care, I'm disrespecting my dad, who's going to stand with me, who's going to stand with him? Pretty crazy way to make a statement, but that's what he does. Absalom then leads an army out to kill his father, and instead he ends up stuck in an oak tree and ultimately ran through with spears. So that's how his plan went. Uh, and it is, it is thought that David wrote Psalm 3 while in the wilderness, fleeing from the murderous intent of his own son. It is this backdrop that this psalm is written. So that will give us some context for understanding what David's going through as uh, we read these words. Okay? Let's read it together. He says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Uh, this Selah is kind of a, it's a musical instruction. Um, there's some debate. Most people would say it's kind of an interlude where just instruments would be playing because this is written as a song. Uh, I guess give you a minute to think about what it is that was just said. Uh, verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. We'll start back at verse 1 and work through this together. Uh, Verse 1, we see that um, as David retreated to the wilderness, 
As he takes those that are loyal with him and begins to leave the city, if you read the story, we see the number of those that are joining in Absalom's rebellion increases, right? Uh, and that's kind of like what you'll see as this football season begins and the, the records start to come out and we have winners and losers. We'll see people kind of shift loyalties based on what they're seeing. Anybody know somebody like that? Okay. Um, none of you, of course. I know you've already got your team picked and you're ride or die, but uh, people do this. They do. Um, they don't really know what loyalty and honor is. They don't really uh, understand those principles. Instead, they kind of look around, and based on what would be most advantageous for them in the moment, they kind of pick a team, and uh, that's sad. So we see uh, as David retreats to the wilderness, a lot more people are jumping on the Absalom bandwagon. They're flipping their jerseys to uh, the big A instead of the big D on the back. So um, Many interpret David's move to flee the city as one, it's like it's a move of somebody that's desperate and scared. The reality is actually both a calm and calculated maneuver on his part. In 2 Samuel 15, 14, we see that David was concerned for the city. Uh, he knew that Absalom could be ruthless and volatile, and so he likely withdrew to keep the inevitable battle that was to come from endangering the city and its inhabitants. Um, and this shows us some of why David is called a man after God's own heart. Even in the midst of great personal turmoil and difficulty, he is still concerned for the well-being of others, and he's not only focused on himself. You see that? Because honestly, staying in the fortified city where all the weapons were cached and, and he could kind of build strong, you know, a bit of fortification around himself to kind of fight back against his son Absalom, he probably would have had a better chance strategically doing the fight there. Uh, and it wasn't fear that caused him to run. If you go back and read the story, you'll see his first concern is if, if Absalom descends on this city, it's, it's going to be bad for the city. And so even at greater risk to himself, he withdraws, um, which also probably caused many people that would have fought for him to end up switching teams. And so uh, David's highest concern, even in the midst of maybe his greatest personal tragedy yet, <laughs> the betrayal of his own son, uh, he's concerned about those that he's given, been given charge over by the Lord. Uh, may we all live and think that way. Uh, verse 2. Verse 2 starts with uh, the phrase, Many are saying of my soul. Uh, we all have likely had a time where there was no shortage of haters <laughs> lined up to give their opinion on our struggles, right? seems like whenever somebody's struggling, there's a whole line of people that know more about it than you do, though they know nothing about it, and uh, they've got a lot of opinions about how you got there, what you should do next, whether or not you deserve it, uh, and really we see two sinful attitudes out of these detractors, okay? The fact that they're uh, saying many are rising... Up, he says, many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. That's an issue. There's two sinful attitudes we see out of that declaration on their part. First of all, amazingly, after all the history of God redeeming these people from situations where the odds were completely against them, uh, some of them are looking at the situation in the natural. They're seeing that Absalom already has way more support and people, and so they foolishly assume God is going to be unable to deliver David just based on the number game they're counting, right? Uh, how many times, my dear friends, the Israelites, has God won situations on your behalf when the numbers didn't stack up? And yet now you're going to look at David and say, whew, this ain't looking good for you, brother. God can't help you. It's just, it's, it's foolishness. 
So some may be saying that God won't help David or can't help David. Uh, number two, some, some may agree with Absalom, and they might think that this is what David has coming to him based on the fact that he, you know, did not act several years ago uh, in the situation with Tamar. And so they are standing in prideful judgment, saying that they are certain that God will be unwilling to help David. So they're either, they either believe foolishly that God will be unable to help David, or they believe foolishly that they can be sure God is unwilling to help David. Both of these assertions prove to be untrue. Uh, and, and you should be careful. I mean, I mean, the unable one is never true. Don't ever bet against God, okay? Can we just, I'll just say it plain, because that's a bad bet, right? God wins. He's the mighty one. No one's slowing him down. He wants something done, it's going to happen, okay? God wins, everyone else loses. Don't stand in his way, all right? Everyone on that train? You guys good with that? Yay, because I'm on his team. Okay, um, but also be careful judging whether you're sure or not God's going to be unwilling to help someone, because you may not have all the facts. And it's kind of prideful to assume you know the mind of God, you know, him being omniscient and, you know, omnipotent and eternal, and you're not, so. All right. Um, verse 3. The reality is, though, that uh, David has been here before, and so we begin to see that. So he kind of starts out by saying, Lord, my adversaries have increased. They're crying out that there's no deliverance for me. But he says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. David's been here before. We see that he does not boast in his well-known military brilliance, right? He is widely known by everybody, friend and foe alike, that he is a brilliant tactician. Everybody knows that. But we don't see that, he, you know, he says, my adversaries have increased. Uh, everyone's saying there's no deliverance for me. However, I'm really good at war. That's not what he says. He says, you, O Lord. But you, O Lord. He knows where to look for deliverance. Uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't bring up his brilliance. He doesn't, bring up, uh, he doesn't bring up the capabilities of his loyal mighty men whose exploits are also known throughout the whole region. I mean, his mighty men, they were, they were the jack-it-up crew, right? If they got there, you might as well sit down because they were going to tear something up. Everybody knew it. Don't mess with David or the guys he rolls with because they're bad, right? Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't talk about that. That's, he's not putting his, his eggs in that basket. David knows that these things count for little, and it is the Lord who is his help and shield. And that's where he goes as he's declaring uh, the fact that he has hope even in the midst of uh, all this difficulty. Uh, verse 4 says, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Uh, if you look back in 2 Samuel 15, you see that David walked the Mount of Olives, barefoot and with his head covered, weeping and crying to the Lord. So he flees from the city, he goes out, he is overcome with anguish, he's walking barefoot up the mountain, head covered, weeping to the Lord. Um, I think it's interesting that he was not quick to anger as a result of this incredible betrayal by his son and by the people who he had really been very good to and been a good leader for. Uh, he was instead broken and he sought counsel and comfort from the Lord. I would, I would ask us to assess our own lives, right? Maybe, maybe you don't have a son, but think of the person closest to you. Think of somebody that you really love and care about that all of a sudden, they betrayed you in, in the most dastardly way possible. That person, that the, the, the one person you thought they were gonna be there, man, that, that no way this would ever happen, well, then it happens. They turn on you. They betray you. What's your first go-to? 
Is your, what is your first reaction when you're hurt? Do you turn to malice and slander or anger? Or is the first place you turn because you know that none of those will be helpful is to the Lord? David had the ability, had he just gone into the rage that many of us would, he could have got to the base of the Mount of Olives and instead of taking off his shoes, covering his head and weeping to the Lord and asking for help, he could have got a stick out and started drawing out diagrams of how we're going to turn this thing around and everybody that's fighting against me is ending up with their head on a stake by the end of the night. He could have done that, but that's not his reaction. Anger was not his primary lead-in in being betrayed. Malice and slander and revenge was not the first thing he was thinking of. What, 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 what happened? He was broken. He wept. And he sought counsel and comfort from the Lord. I think there's something instructive in that for us. Verses 5 and 6. It says, uh, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. I want to read you something from uh, Matthew Henry's commentary on this uh, portion of Scripture. He says this, It seems here to be meant of the wonderful quietness and calmness of David's spirit in the midst of his dangers, having by prayer committed himself and his cause to God and being sure of his protection, his heart was fixed and he was easy. The undutifulness of his son, the disloyalty of his subjects, the treachery of many of his friends, the hazard of his person, the fatigues of his march, and the uncertainty of the event never deprived him an hour's sleep, nor gave any disturbance to his repose. For the Lord, by his grace and the consolations of his spirit, powerfully sustained him and made him easy. It is a great mercy when we are in trouble to have our minds stayed upon God so as never either to eat or sleep with trembling and astonishment. As I read this, I, I felt myself simultaneously greatly encouraged and incredibly convicted at the same time. To let myself contemplate and insert myself emotionally into the situation that David is up against, I have to imagine that the wolves of discouragement and fear had to have been nipping hard at his heels. He was dealing with the bitterness of betrayal and the real and present danger that that betrayal produced. And yet, because of his confidence in the sovereignty and the goodness of his God, he lay down and slept. I mean, some of us are worried about how many zeros in a bank account can't sleep. I mean, this guy doesn't know if his son's going to show up with a bunch of people with swords and cut him down in the next hour. And what's he do? You know what? I'm tired. I'm going to sleep. And does. What does that say about his confidence in the Lord? Clearly his confidence is in himself, because when you go to sleep, what are you? Super vulnerable, right? Especially if you sleep like me. I'm like, a, you know, a polar bear in full hibernation, right? I, my wife is genuinely scared about what it would take to wake me up. Um, I don't know why that is, uh, and I don't know if David was the same, but it really doesn't matter. You lay down and you let yourself go into deep sleep, man. You are vulnerable. And so he's trusting in somebody other than himself, apparently. Again, I think that's incredibly instructive. If you read the story, you will see that David is not even sure of what will happen. He is dealing with the possibility that the haters are right. 
Because as a result of his sin against Uriah the Hittite, you guys remember what happened in that story? Uh, David's house is taller than everyone else's, so he can see everyone else's roofs. There's a woman named Bathsheba taking a bath, which I think is ironic, always have. Um, Catches his eye. He calls for her. uh, Sins against her and her husband, who happens to be out fighting on the front lines of David's war. And then he ends up knowing he needs to cover it up because she ends up pregnant. He ends up dead over the whole thing. And uh, the prophet, a prophet came to him in that time and told him, as a result of this, uh, one of your own sons is going to rise up against you. David knew that. This is still in his mind. And so he's not sure. He think, he, the haters might be right. God may be unwilling to help you. This may be the, the, the due justice that you're receiving here. So the prophet of God told him that, that one of his own sons would rise up against him. And so we have to know that his confidence is not in the fact, listen to me, his confidence is not in the fact that God will bring this situation into alignment with what David thinks is best. His trust for God is so complete that he sleeps soundly knowing that whatever the outcome, God is just and faithful. He's not even sure yet. He's not sure that he won't get cut down as a result of his sin earlier in his life. He's not, he thinks that maybe that's what's going on. And you see the language. If you, I wish you would go back and read the story. You'll see it. You'll see that that's, he's not really sure. And that's part of why he's not in a rage and angry. And part of it is the life experience. He's walked with God enough where he's begun to really trust his sovereignty. Um, he's seen God move, move enough times that he, he's not so quick to uh, insert himself as God in the situation. This brings us to uh, verse 7. It says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. David ends his prayer and this song with a request for help and salvation. And in so doing, he declares both a truth from experience and a forward-looking prophetic utterance at the same time. Let me show that to you. So I I think there's some debate about verse 7. When he says, you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek, you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. That seems like a past tense, right? That seems like he's talking about something that has happened. I think that's true. There are others that would say that's not the case, that he's talking kind of in a future, in a prophetic way, that that's what he believes is going to happen in this situation. I honestly think that both are true. I think this this portion here, verse 7, has a double fulfillment. For all David's shortcomings, there is one thing that he gets right here. He is not a man who quickly forgets the Lord's faithfulness in the past. Uh, and he doesn't forget it quickly when, when some new calamity comes. He remembers God's mighty hand in the valley of Elah when he removed the head of the Philistine giant. He remembers God's protection as he fled from King Saul's attempts to murder him. He remembers the valley of Rephaim when God went before him and struck down the Philistines. He remembered the Arameans and all the others that had been defeated because of God's strength and faithfulness. And he knows that this occasion will be no different. He is so confident in God's perfect justice that he says in 2 Samuel 15 verses 25 and 26, here's what he says. About the whole situation, all the factors, here's his summary. Listen to David's heart. Let God do to me as he, as seems good to him. 
Let God do to me as seems good to him. Which is very close to something that Jesus said. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In contrast to David's confidence because of God's past faithfulness, we unfortunately are often prone to let our testimony fade into the background and be overwhelmed by a new set of trials and difficulties. It's in Revelation 12, 11 that we are told we are able to overcome the wicked enemies of God by two things, the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And we are often so quick to forget the power of both when we are faced with some new struggle or situation. Unfortunately, those aren't the first things we go to. Those aren't the first things we think of. And it oftentimes leads to a compounding of our issues and a fear that we need not have. Verse 8 says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. This is how David ends this song. David makes a definitive statement of where his hope is placed. He knows that salvation is from the Lord. And we also see the heart of a God-ordained leader as he ends this prayer song with a request on behalf of the people that he loves and serves as their king. Right? Half of them have betrayed them. Half of them have joined Absalom's team. Nobody's real concerned about him at this point. He is the focal point of the, the bitterness and anger of a son that is volatile and violent. He is in incredible danger. And yet at the end of this song, at the end of this prayer, his concern is that God's blessing be upon the people. Even some of them that are, have currently betrayed him. That's the heart of a God-ordained leader. I see the overarching theme of this psalm to be honest declaration of sorrow and difficulty followed by hope and victory by the truth of his testimony. So I think first we see David being brutally honest about how bad it looks. But then we also see that he's able to end in hope and victory because of the truth of his testimony. Because he's able to reach back to the prior faithfulness of God and encourage himself and then speak faith into the situation. Uh, he encourages himself because of God's faithfulness. My question to us is, if David was as prone as we sometimes are to forget or not even notice God's faithfulness, as it pertains to our past, would he have been able to write this psalm? If David was as prone as we are to sometimes not even notice God's faithfulness to us or forget it, would he have been able to sing this song to God in the midst of this situation? I think not. I think not. I believe that this song instead would have been only declarations of despair. He might have been able to throw in a hopeful request for help at best, but it could never have had the confident and victorious language that we find here. It is only because he has remembered his testimony. It's only because he's remembered the stories of God's faithfulness from times past. It is only because he knows the character of his God and he's not forgotten it. It's, not, it's because he's been spiritually aware as he's walked through his life of the times that God's hand has moved on his behalf. He's able to speak with the kind of confidence that verse 7 shows us. 
where he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. He's able to remember that God's done that for him and declare that that will happen moving forward. And he knows that possibly the wicked that will be shattered in this situation is him, and he's happy for any of it because he trusts God that much. Help us, Lord. Let's spend a few moments thinking through this idea in light of this psalm. Let's think through this statement and filter it through the grid of this psalm. Your testimony provides peace and power for you and hope for other people. Your testimony provides peace and power for you and hope for other people. Let's think about that in light of this psalm. It was David's story with God. The truth that God's never wavering hand was upon him and with him, even through his own times of darkness and sin, that gave him the calm and confidence to sing this psalm, even as he fled from the sword of his own son. When anxiety and stress and the innumerable pressures of this life try to press in around you and snuff out the light of Christ in you, do you reach for the beauty of your own story with Jesus to find peace and strength? How often do you think of the people and things in your life that you know are gifts from God himself? How often do you think of the times that you know he has healed, rescued, or restored you? What about the times you know that he's protected you? How often are these the things that fill your thoughts? And are they available to be recalled in moments of difficulty when you need to be reminded of God's faithfulness and goodness to you? If you are serving and walking with Jesus, then these kind of testimonies are guaranteed to be woven throughout your story. The question is, do you recognize them and do you meditate on them? Or, when each new difficult situation comes, you find yourself so focused on the the facts and figures of that new problem that there's no room left for you to contemplate God's goodness and faithfulness thus far. Do you give thanks for these good things from God again and again until they are engraved upon the tablet of your heart? Is there a list of things you know God's done? Is there a list of the gifts you know God's given you? Are there times you know where it is undeniable God has intervened? I'm telling you right now, if you walk with Jesus, those things have happened. If you're sitting here blank at this moment, one of two things has happened. And I love you, but I need to put this on you because I love you. If, you, if you're struggling to recall some of the times like David had, where God undeniably interceded on his behalf, if you've walked with Jesus for some time and you can't call those up, then one of two things has happened. You've either not recognized it when God's done it, or you've let it slip away and fade away from your memory. Either one of those is tragic, because part of the way that we push back, part of the way that we stay encouraged, part of the way that we are not beat down before the fight even starts is by being able to recall these testimonies. And Revelation tells us that ultimately, the weapons that are going to be fought with, they're going to throw down our common enemy, are going to be two things. The blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. What has God done? What has God given you? Where are the times that you know God has been faithful? What are the things and the people that he's put in your life that are undeniably from him? 
Are these things constantly in your, in your meditations? Are they, are they able to be pulled up that when the next event comes that wants to try to shake your faith in God's goodness, that you can instantly reach back to these things and say, no, no, no. God was faithful then. God was generous then. God restored me then. He didn't fail me then. He's always been faithful, and this time will be no different. Would you be able to sing a song declaring forward confidence in God's ultimate goodness? And totally trust that even if that didn't look like you wanted it to look, it would still be good and it would still be just. This is what we see happening. This is how we're instructed to live and think. This is what it looks like to have a heart after God. This is why David is held up both as a broken man, but also a man that served God with fervor. How many of you know the power of your story to bring hope to others? Do you think about that? I I could not count for you how many times when talking to either believers or non-believers that I'm trying to communicate some principle or truth and I'm trying my hardest to convey it and it's just not clicking. I'm using all the scriptures I can think of, examples I can think of. I'm doing my best to try to explain this idea that would help them and it's just not clicking. You can tell you're getting that blank stare back. And it wasn't working until God, by his Holy Spirit, reminds me of a time when he faithfully worked that very truth in my life or in the life of someone I know. And then I'm able to share and relate that story. And by telling that story, the idea I'm trying to communicate becomes all of a sudden a vibrant reality. Well, I don't know if I, don't know if I buy that. I, I promise you this is the God's honest truth. Out of a story and experience of a place where God was faithful to me last week, Not two days later, I received a text message of somebody asking me to pray for them being in the exact same situation. And it was only because God, by his Holy Spirit, instructed me to share that specific story on that specific Sunday that they ended up in a situation the very next week where they were able to pull on that experience, walk in light of it, and end up seeing a victory instead of a defeat. You can believe me about that if you want to. You can say, hey, preachers embellish stuff. I'm telling you right now, there's zero embellishment to that. That's exactly what happened. And if you're really struggling to believe it and you think maybe this guy's full of hogwash, come see me. The beautiful thing about digital communication is I have the text messages. (laughs) Amen. But how many of you think about your your story and and its power to bring hope to others? Uh, Our stories can help truths and principles become vibrant realities in the lives of others. Maybe you're here today, and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. And so you would say to me, listen, man, nothing you're saying applies to me. I don't have any testimonies. I don't have any stories of God's faithfulness. I have nothing to do with him. I would just humbly, I understand that you're in a different position than most of whom I'm addressing today, but I would just ask you to humbly consider this. James 1.17 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from God the Father. And so I'm just asking you, I'm humbly asking you to do this. Maybe you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. And, and I just want to say to you that uh, I, I'm so glad you're here. I'm honored that you would sit and listen to the Bible be taught when you don't necessarily even know if it's true. But I'm just asking you to do this and, and assess whether this is right. If you would look back at your life and you would think of any good or beautiful thing, any good or beautiful thing. My life's been terrible. Yeah, but 
I mean, right down to the air in your lungs at this moment, and, and even the sunshine on your face today. Every one of these things. I'm talking about any time. I, I know maybe your whole family life has been a wreck. Maybe from birth it's only seemed to be struggle and difficulty. I understand that sometimes that's the case. But I also know that even in the midst of a life that difficult, sometimes you've stepped outside on a beautiful day and felt a breeze hit your face, taken a deep breath, and felt that the, the beauty of God's creation. And what I'm saying to you is even that simple thing is a gift from him. And I'm asking you, based on that, to, to see and give some credence to the idea that even though you've rejected him, God has still been good to you. I can tell you for sure that once I broke under the beautiful weight of grace and surrendered to Jesus, I begin to see my past with brand new eyes. Where before all I could see was what I perceived to be as failures on God's part to do anything for me, to help me at any point. That's the way I used to look. I would look back, I would run the tape on my life, and I would see only the pain and only the difficulty and only the spots where it seemed like God didn't show up. But once I broke into the beautiful weight of grace, my vision changed. And where I used to only see that, I began to have my eyes open to the truth that even before I asked God to, he was loving and leading and guiding and protecting me. Even when I'd still rejected him. I hadn't asked him yet. I, I didn't want anything to do with him. And I can t I'm telling you, I can look back now. Well, you're brainwashed. I don't think that's it. I think before my eyes were dark and my understanding was really restricted. And I think since I broke under the weight of grace and Jesus changed my heart and opened my eyes, the light of the gospel began to change the way I was able to perceive things. Now I can look back, I can run the same tape of my life and I can say, oh, there was a spot. Had God not really been good and faithful, I'd have been dead there and there and there and I was probably protected there and there was a spot where that could have been a whole lot worse, but God's hand was there with me. Even when I was a rebel, doing nothing but spitting in his face and running from him. And maybe that's you today. And I'm just asking you to quit spitting in the face of a God that loves you that much and quit rebelling from him. He, he's, he's loving you and he's being good to you even though you're not returning the favor. And so I'm asking you to just, just turn around and see what it would be like to surrender to a God that loves you that much. Quit trying to do this thing on your own because it's not going to work out good. I don't say that to scare you. And the primary reason why we should turn from sin to trust in Jesus is not to avoid some impending doom, but because we're convinced of how loving that God really is. It's his loving kindness that draws us to him. Should we have a holy reverence and fear of God because he's God? Absolutely. He is savior and judge. And I think we should be very respectful and reverent in the way we deal with him. However, the primary reason I would call to you today to consider stop trying to be your own God and to serve the God of the universe is because he has made abundantly clear that what he wants is to be in relationship with you, that he cares for you, and he's made a way for that to be possible. And I would ask you to consider that maybe that life surrendered to a God that loves you that much would be better than the one that you've been crafting for yourself. You may not trust this. You may think it may count zero in your equation of coming up to a decision, but I'm just telling you right now, um, I did it the other way, and it was a whole lot harder and a whole lot worse.
Are you saying life with Jesus is always easier? No. No. Sometimes it's a lot harder. But it's always better. Never regretted it. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus and you have had what you perceive to be more than your fair share of trials and difficulty. And so you would struggle to reach into your own story and draw out a testimony to bring peace to bear for you or hope for someone else. I would ask you to consider first God's grace in saving you. Begin to meditate on the beauty of the merciful salvation you have received by grace and that not of yourself but as a gift of God. I would ask you to honestly consider the transformative power of the word of God in your life. Remember, think back, really do this. Think back to how you used to think and how you used to react to situations. And even though you are still imperfect, please rejoice in the sanctifying work of God in your life thus far. I know some of you walked in here today Some of you are followers of Jesus. You want nothing more than to obey Jesus, but you walked in here today with a yoke of condemnation around your neck because this week you didn't act like somebody that loves and follows Jesus. And I realize that that might make it seem to you that there has nothing's gone on, that nothing's changed, that maybe all of this stuff is just, you know, an emotional appeal. But why am I still doing these things? But I'm asking you to I'm asking you to dig beyond this week. Go back in the memory banks. Think about the way you were before Christ came and changed your heart and mind. Think about how dark your thinking was. Guys, I screwed up a bunch this week, but I can tell you what. At no time this week did I think the way I used to think. All the way back before my, I I can tell you the point. I can take you there in my mind. I wish we could just, there was a machine where we could all jump in and go through the memory lane together. I'm telling you. Everything was dark. Every perspective was dark. It was only despair and hopelessness. At no time this week, even though I faltered and fought against my flesh and the tendencies that come along with that, at no time was I there. And so today, even though I was imperfect this week, I can rejoice in the fact that I'm not where I was. The sanctifying work of God's Spirit has brought me from where I was to where I am today. And I have the promise that He's not done yet. And I'm asking you, if you're discouraged today, think back. Don't Rewind the tape beyond this week. What has God done? What has changed? The way you think, the way you react, the way you speak, the way you treat people. And rejoice in what has already happened. Don't focus on the parts of you that are still imperfect. Should you repent for that? Yes, absolutely. Ask for God's grace to do better, for sure. But what do you meditate on most? Do you spend most of your time thinking about the reasons why, that that if we really were honest, they are innumerable, that we should be grateful to the God that has made us and saved us, that is working on us and changing us? Do you spend most of your time thinking about the things you're you're grateful for, or do you spend most of the time thinking of the ways you've failed, other people have failed you, and that, you know, ultimately all of that lends to you believing that maybe God's not really doing what he said he would do? Where's the, where's the, the propensity, the, the greatest portion of your focus, where is it set? I'm telling you, you're going you're gonna to have a hard way if all of your time is focused on the negative in your own life, uh, whether things that come from you or things that are done to you. Uh, that's that's going to be a hard way. Your life will not be full of joy and gratitude. Um, and you wouldn't be able to <laughs> sing a psalm of hopefulness in the midst of a 
terrible trial like our brother David. Only the one who intentionally tries can keep from finding something to praise God for. Only the one who intentionally tries can keep from finding something to praise God for. To never hear the truth of the gospel explained clearly would also leave someone with a higher tendency for panic instead of praise. And so I don't want us to miss the chance to hear again the testimony that we all can share in. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And I just want to ask you, as we begin to go through, it's going to begin to be illuminated more and more, but I'm hoping that you've already begun to see because we, we try constantly here to hold up this idea that all of the scriptures are pointing to Christ. And I hope as you've read through this, you've already begun to see some of the unmistakable foreshadowing in David's situation to that of the life of Christ. If you haven't yet, listen for it. Here it comes. So going through the gospel as we do, first of all, what do we have to do? We have to be honest. We have to tell the truth. We have to give you the bad news, right? A lot of places skip this part because people don't like bad news. And if you only tell them good news and people smile, then the offerings are bigger and people come back. And that's the equation a lot of places use to decide what's going to be said from the pulpit. Here's the bottom line. We'll never understand the beauty of the good news if we don't first come to grips with the depth of the bad news. Here's the bad news. God made mankind perfect in the same way that Absalom rebelled against his father who loved him because he wanted his position. We rebelled against God because we thought we knew better than he did. This caused trust and relationship to be broken and sinful men could never again enter God's perfect presence. And since God is the source of eternal life, death then entered our experience. That's the bad news. The same way Absalom rebelled against his daddy who loved him, mankind rebelled against the father who said, I love you, I care for you, but all the, we, we have this thing, this prideful tendency where we, we, we want to be like God, right? It, it wasn't just this idea of knowing good and evil and eating that fruit. There was, there was it mixed into that this desire that we always have to determine for ourselves what good and evil is. All of us constantly have to continue by God's grace to tamp down the prideful tendency that rises up in us to want to be our own God. That is the problem. All sin springs from that prideful tendency. It's the one that got Absalom. It's the one that gets you and me day in and day out. It's the thing we have to push back against. It's what got our first parents in the garden. That's bad news. Death comes in. We're separated from God. Though grieved by our rebellion, God did not panic. So thankful. He set into motion the plan of redemption that had been laid out before the foundation of the world. That Jesus would leave his throne, be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, and then step in as the substitute and sacrifice in our place. Sin had a price. God's perfect character demanded that justice be served, but instead of demanding that price of us, he stepped in and paid it for us. Jesus died on the cross, his blood providing the last ever needed sacrifice. And by his atoning work, he broke the back of sin and death, and he broke out the teeth of our enemy, Satan. Three days later, he rose from the grave, his triumph made final, and our victory assured. Praise God. If you're a Christian today and you're struggling to reach into your own testimony and find something hopeful to pull forward, reach to that. Because 
To know Jesus is to be able to share in that testimony right there. The fact that of no cause of your own, no goodness in yourself, only because of the mercy and the grace of a God who loved us enough to make us, even though he knew we would rebel against him, and then he made a way to redeem us and restore us to himself. If you've got nothing else to pull for, if you've got nothing else to reach into your story and pull forward as a source of hope for the future, think about that. Let yourself stand upon the rock of your beautiful and perfect salvation. I would call our attention to some interesting things. Isn't it interesting that both David and Jesus mourned and wept over the sin of men at the Mount of Olives? Both men were betrayed by those who were supposed to be their family. Both men declared ultimately their faith and trust in God's sovereign power. You remember David? He said, whatever God sees fit to do, let him do that to me. He was in pretty close proximity to the same place that Jesus said, nevertheless, thy will be done. Both men saw those who had set themselves up as their enemies, decimated and defeated, even though both of them loved and cared for those enemies. I didn't mention this to you, but all through that story, towards the end when the war is about to happen, David, he separates out. Uh, he starts doing his military thing. He separates out, puts leaders in charge of the people he's got as they're about to go to battle, and, in, and he charges them in front of everybody. He tells his commanders, do good to my son Absalom. Be gentle to him. Every single one of them so that everybody hears it. Now somebody ends up not doing that, but the bottom line is what was in David's heart? He had already forgiven his son who was still trying to murder him. That sounds familiar. There was somebody else hanging on a cross, bleeding and dying, looking down at the ones that just nailed him there, asking for their forgiveness before they had, before they had even repented. Praise God that the heart of God causes men to think that way. And may we pray and ask for whatever part of us would not react that way in a similar situation to get there. I find myself in the reading and studying of this psalm asking desperately for God to increase my, not only my ability to trust and receive his grace, but to offer that grace to others. We see David commanding his men to be gentle to his son when his son still has murderous red blood in his eyes coming to try to kill him. He doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't respond in vengeance. He's still hoping for reconciliation. And his heart is soft and tender towards his enemy. I know you guys got some people that ticked you off this week. Very few of them are leading an army of guys with swords coming to kill you. And so we should ask for God's grace for the person that annoys us a bit. Or maybe is a backstabber at work or some other much less minor offense than we see here. We should ask for God's grace to pray for them. And ask for God's grace that we would forgive them before they even want it. Because if we'll do that... We will show forth the mercy that God has already shown us because he did that for us, right? You know that. That's part of why that should be the way we act. That's part of why that should be the way we think because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He forgave us and loved us and pursued us before we were even sorry for all of our treachery. Guys, our call is to reflect that. We can't do that unless we totally trust God's sovereign. You will be tempted to take vengeance into your own hands. You will be tempted to hold on to your angst and unforgiveness unless you're able to trust that God can handle it better than you can. 
You will constantly hold on to those things. You will not release people in forgiveness. If you think what you need to do is stay in the situation and stay mad and keep your conniving manipulation in the mix to make sure that person gets put down where they belong. Oh, I'm going to knock them down a peg. It's going to go bad for you, friend. Don't do that. Trust God. Pray for those that persecute you. Pray for those that annoy you. Pray for those that would seek after your bad. We're having fun, aren't we? Both men ultimately saw the great and glorious salvation of God in the end of their situation. The biggest difference is that David was reaping what he had sown, and he was paying the price for his own sin, whereas Jesus was paying the price for everyone else's. Not one of us is perfect. We have all sinned. Sin separates men and women from God. But God has made clear that his desire is for our relationship with him to be restored. Genesis to Revelation, one of the main themes of what he's telling us is that you rebelled, you rejected me, you ran from me, but what I want is restoration still. We are seeing the beautiful heart of God reflected in David's response to his son who ran from him and rebelled against him and was treacherous and betrayed him. But what he wants really is somehow, even though the battle is about to rage, he wants somehow his son to be spared because he's hoping for reconciliation. We see the heart of God in this response. Why all these questions about whether or not God should be trusted? Why all this visceral, angry response toward a God that loves like that? Why, how do we reject him? He has made clear his desire is for our relationship with him to be restored. We can't do more good things or less bad things to fix the problem of our imperfection. That's simple to understand, isn't it? You have perfect and imperfect, and there is no in-between. And once perfection has been lost and imperfection is our state, there's no amount of good things we can do or no amount of bad things we can stop doing to get us back to perfect. And perfect is what is required for relationship with God. Because that's the case, because we can't do it, we have to be reborn. We have to be made new. And our filthy rags of sin and self must be replaced by his robes of righteousness. Salvation from sin and forgiveness from God are only possible by faith. Will you today believe the gospel? And maybe you say, I've been a Christian a long time. Will you again today believe the gospel? Will you believe it in such a way that the next time calamity tries to come and press in around you and try to rob your joy or your, your hope to be a help to anybody else, will you cling to this gospel if you have nothing else to cling to in such a way that you cannot be taken down, in such a way that you will not be drugged down into anger and malice? Will this gospel preserve and keep you no matter what comes against you? Will you believe it to that degree today? Will you rejoice in it and let it be a source of life and hope for you and joy in every situation? I'm not asking you to mentally agree with these facts about the gospel that I'm sharing with you. I'm asking you to let it go down into your heart into such a way that it changes the way you think and act and speak and respond in every situation. Will you believe the gospel today? 
Can you trust the finished work of Christ to remove your sin and heal your hurts? Because it does both. Please trust Jesus today. He is much, much more than worthy of that. May we be a people who, like David, are honest about our struggles without being overcome by them. May we be a people who remember with vivid passion the testimonies of our Father's faithfulness. And because of that, may we be a people who live in perfect peace, who enjoy sweet sleep because of confidence in our King. And may we be a people who are able to happily share the hope we have with as many people as possible. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we are thankful for the third psalm. We are thankful for the life of King David. We are thankful, God, that you had done such a work in him at this point that he was able to take the few people loyal to him to flee the holy city, to run to the wilderness, to find himself barefoot, head covered, walking up the Mount of Olives and singing this psalm of hope to you with no idea what would happen, with total and complete trust in your sovereign goodness, reserved to the fact that what may happen is that he would be struck down that day. And if that was what would happen, that he would call it just, that he would say yes and amen. God, so many of us are not there. Lord, so many of us want to impose upon you our idea of how the situation should go. So many of us, God, have decided that we know what would be best. And so we pray and we beg and we manipulate. We do everything we can to try to bend the situation to get it to what we see in our mind's eye. May we stop, Lord, with this conniving. May we rest in your sovereignty. May we remember, Lord, with vivid, with vividness, God, the beauty of our testimony. May we remember how you've come and changed and made us new. May we remember, Lord God, how we used to think and act and respond and speak. May we remember the darkness that we used to dwell in. And may we look now and see what you've done. May we rejoice in the sanctification thus far. May we rejoice in the truth of your word that tells us that you aren't done yet. God, may we never have to strain to reach for some reason to trust you. May our testimony be at the ready. God, may we be a people who spend often and much of our time meditating on your goodness, the things that you've done, the people that you've blessed us with, that you've brought into our lives as beautiful gifts. May we constantly contemplate the, the gift of your word. Without your word, we'd be adrift in a sea of despair and hopelessness. But because of your word, Lord, we have an anchor and we are set in any storm. Thank you because of your word. We have solid rock to build our life upon. That We are not blown to and fro. That we are like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. And that, Lord, we are connected to you. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that every single one of us that knows you has a testimony. Father, for those of us that have not paid attention to the times your hand has moved on our behalf. God, I ask that you would remind us of those times. Bring us back. If they've fallen out of our memory or we just didn't notice when it happened, God, I ask that you would, by your sovereign grace and by the help of your Holy Spirit, you would bring to our remembrance every single time you've interceded on our behalf. The Lord God, our quiver would be full of arrows of testimony that not only when we need to speak life and truth and victory to ourselves so that we would have peace in the midst of difficulty, but when we need to reach for those things and battle 
battle on behalf of someone else, when we need to offer hope to someone else, God, may we be vibrantly aware of the points in our story where you have been faithful because we know there are many. And we repent for our tendency to forget those things and to be overcome by whatever new calamity tries to overtake us. Lord, we have that tendency, but we want to be less prone to that and more prone to be a people so full of joy and confidence because of how good you've been that moving forward we cannot be shaken. Lord, may that be true for our own lives and may our confidence, humble confidence because of you, Lord, may it rub off on others. May it provide peace to those that don't have it. And Lord, may it reflect your goodness and faithfulness. May it cause curiosity in those around us and open up opportunities for us to share its source, which is the truth of your beautiful gospel. It's in Jesus' name, Lord, that we repent. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.